Welcome to I'm Fine, You, brought to you by Maybelline New York, where we are normalizing the conversation around anxiety, depression, and mental health. Now here's your host, Chrissy Rutherford. Welcome back to I'm Fine, You, presented by Maybelline New York. Maybelline's Brave Together initiative is dedicated to breaking the stigma around anxiety and depression while addressing challenges and providing resources to those in need. Hi, I'm Chrissy Rutherford, and on this podcast, we're channeling this mission into real-life conversations to help normalize the topic of mental health and provide tangible resources and guidance for anyone who needs a mental health boost. To provide mental health resources, Maybelline New York will make a monetary donation to mental health organizations in conjunction with each episode. Today, I'm speaking with professor of psychology at Columbia University and director of the Columbia WHO Center for Global Mental Health, Dr. Kathleen Pike. She joins us today to talk about how depression and anxiety can impact us and how we can find ways to manage that anxiety, as well as help loved ones who are struggling. Welcome, Dr. Pike. Thank you, Chrissy. It's nice to be here. You are a professor of psychology at Columbia University and director of Columbia WHO Center for Global Mental Health, no big deal. Can you tell us a little bit about the work you do day to day? Our Columbia WHO Center for Global Mental Health is really about getting what we know, getting the science out into practice. And so we translate knowledge, what we learn at the university level or in a lab level, in the real world and take it to schools, take it to workplaces, take it out into communities to try to bring mental health into the places where it matters most, where the people are. Amazing. And I'm always so curious about how people got interested in what they do. So how did you know that psychology was something you wanted to pursue as a career? Well, it's always easier to tell the story of a career journey in reverse, but I started out thinking that I was going into international studies and I would work in some role in the foreign service. And as I pursued that area of study, what I realized was that what I really cared about and what always intrigued me and the readings that I pursued were about the social history and about the social dynamics of a moment in time or a a historical conflict, for example, or leadership. And so with that interest, I shifted gears and really honed in on the psychology of these aspects of human relationships and the role of mental health in how societies function, how communities function, how leaders impact the groups that they lead. And I got really lucky in being able to bring those interests together in running this center in global mental health. So we look at these issues across many different cultures and societies. So cool. Yeah, I think psychology was something I was always sort of interested in as a kid. I just knew that I liked having deep conversations. And it wasn't until I got into my 20s that I really started like diving deeper into it myself. And so sometimes I'm like, maybe one day I'll go back to school and get a psychology degree. I often, for many years, I taught intro to psychology, and it's one of the largest classes that students take. And I knew that the majority of those students wouldn't go on to be psychologists or work specifically in the area of mental health, for example. But to your point, psychology and mental health matters to all of us. 
And so I always thought it was such a privilege and such an opportunity to think about how we can talk about psychology, how we can talk about mental health in ways that matter to everyone, because the truth is it matters to all of us. Yeah, absolutely. So let's get started with the topic of discussion today, depression and anxiety. I'm very familiar with both. Can you first tell us what depression and anxiety are from a medical perspective? So depression and anxiety from a mental health perspective, and I would say it's more of a mental health perspective than a medical perspective because depression and anxiety are more than a medical condition, but also happen in social context. And so from a mental health perspective, depression is about persistent feelings of sadness, loss of interest, loss of energy. When someone has depression, we often see significant changes in appetite, usually a loss of appetite, lower concentration, and lowered self-esteem. In anxiety, we see elevated levels of fear and anticipatory apprehension and worry that impact people's daily engagement, daily life choices. So that can also be associated with the physical experience of racing heart or rapid breathing, sweating, feeling tired. And in the case of depression and anxiety, there are a variety of variations on a theme in terms of how the depression will present or how anxiety will present. But those are the core features that are common to both depression or mood disorders and anxiety disorders. Yeah, I had my first panic attack at 13 and, you know, started seeing a therapist then and now I'm 36 and, you know, it's definitely been very interesting to see how my anxiety has manifested and reinvented itself over the years. So what are some common misconceptions about depression and anxiety? So one of the things that's really important following on the description of what these mental health conditions look like is to recognize that they, they're very common mental health conditions and they occur on a continuum. And by that, what I mean is depression is an extreme form of piece of it is around sadness, right? And we all feel sad. Anxiety, right? We all have experiences of anxiety. So one of the biggest misconceptions is that when we feel sad or when we feel anxious, that there's immediately and automatically something wrong. And that's definitely not the case, right? Our capacity to feel sad, the capacity to feel anxious are in fact essential to our human experience and, and social exchange and are really good for us. It's important for us to know when we feel sad. It's important to respond with sadness in certain cases. It's important to feel anxious in certain cases if we step out into a street and see a truck barreling down the road. We feel anxious and step back. So there are ways in which the kernels of some of the experience of depression and anxiety actually are very healthy and important and life-saving. And so one of the biggest misconceptions is that it's always bad to feel sad or it's always bad to feel anxious or as soon as we feel sad or as soon as we feel anxious, we've got a disorder. That's not the case. There's a big stretch from those experiences to the experience of the mental health aspects of these conditions becoming disorders. 
and figuring out when we've gone from what's normal and healthy to what's a disorder is really, really important. So I'd say one big misconception is that sadness and anxiety are always bad or constitute a disorder. That's not the case. And then one of the other really big misconceptions is that people don't get well. And so if I feel anxious or I feel depressed, I'm going to feel this way forever. And just like you described in your own experience, our mental health moves and evolves and changes. And in fact, the vast majority of people do improve in terms of their anxiety and depression. And so I think it's really important to keep in mind that we can feel anxious and we can feel depressed. We can have an anxiety disorder or mood disorder. We can also recover. Yeah, I love that. And I think that's been something really important even for myself is the reframing of anxiety because the function of anxiety is actually to protect us. And so when you look at it that way, like, you know, how can I make my body feel or how can I like remind myself that I'm safe in moments where, you know, I don't feel safe or I find myself getting worked up and, you know, just reminding like my body is trying to protect me from something. So the pandemic has been, it's been a very hard two years for a lot of people. How do you think it has affected those who were already struggling with depression or anxiety or may have found themselves depressed or anxious because of the pandemic? So the pandemic has been, has profoundly impacted all of our lives right? at an individual level, level of family, community, institutions we're affiliated with, whether it's school or work. I'd say one of the the good news is that the pandemic has prompted us all to talk more about mental health. And that's been really meaningful and has really translated into conversations around mental health in communities where previously there was not a lot of discussion around mental health. At the same time, we're talking a lot more about mental health because people are feeling there are certain individuals who are in more trouble in terms of their mental health. And the groups that have had more difficulty, not everyone has had an exacerbation of symptoms during the course of the pandemic, but pretty much everyone's had been stressed at various times. And those who have had depression or anxiety in the past were at risk for having a resurgence of symptoms and other particular groups. And what we've seen for young women is that it's been a time of increased reports of of stress and then increased reports of loneliness, increased reports of feeling disconnected. And those aren't disorders in in and of themselves, but they put people at risk for feeling more anxious or more depressed. So young women have been at greater risk during the time of this pandemic. I also want to say, though, that there's been a lot of headlines around mental health as the next crisis and mental health in increasing rates of all kinds of mental disorders. And I think we need to temper that. I think that's a lot of clickbait because, in fact, lots of people have reconnected with themselves in ways that have been very constructive, people who tend to have lower needs in terms of socializing, have really enjoyed having fewer social pressures during various periods of the pandemic. So the takeaway for me is that 
There's no single story for the pandemic, and there are certain groups and certain individuals that have been at more risk, and we need to pay attention to those groups and bring more resources to support those individuals. Yeah, I love that you brought that up because I was going to also mention like that we've seen countless headlines and so many think pieces about how bad mental health is getting for people throughout the pandemic and because of it. But as you said, I think the experiences are extremely varied. You know, I think I'm even for myself personally, I have found that I was experiencing a lot less anxiety during the pandemic, even though there were obviously a lot of points of unknown. And that's something that I think a lot of people struggle with. But yeah, I like that you mentioned that, though. I think it's really important because we've also seen young people really stepping up. And I've been so inspired by the groups that young people have founded and the voice that young people are sharing on various social media platforms to actually bring mental health to the foreground, bring it to people's attention and talk about solutions. I think there are many people thinking about how we can do better and that will make a huge difference in terms of how we navigate this pandemic. Yeah, I agree. I think if anything, we're very lucky because the conversation, you know, people are just talking about it more and that's the most important thing and part of the reason why we're doing this podcast. So now, what are some ways people can pull themselves out of a rut if they have those, you know, overwhelming feelings coming on? This is really important and developing a perspective, being able to observe oneself and being able to tune in to when we're feeling more stressed so that we can take care of ourselves is really, really important. So I would say first, one of the things that we can do when we're stressed is recognize that stress, again, it's one of these things that gets a lot of bad rap, but in fact, stress is not a bad thing in and of itself in appropriate doses, right? So when we have a test coming up, we feel stressed and it helps us focus and it helps us sit down and study and prepare and so on. The issue around stress is when it's too much and it's for too long. And so the first thing we can do is pay attention. And when we start to feel stressed, ask ourselves, is this the right dose of stress? Am I able to use this stress in a constructive way? And in doing so, you can really be nice to yourself, right? Talk to yourself kindly. It is impossible to feel happy if you have someone yelling at you all the time. And some of us have someone and it's that voice in our heads yelling at us all the time. <laughs> so first step is paying attention and then talking to ourselves kindly. And from there, when we begin to then treat ourselves the way we would treat someone we love, right? The way we would treat a partner or a friend who we love, a family member who we love with kindness, then we can, in fact, really thrive even when we're feeling stressed. Things we can do is check our sleep, get moving, Going for a brisk walk outdoors in green space is clearly benefit for our mental health. We can take breaks from our phone and turn our phones off for various windows of time. Do something that you like, 
if you, when we engage in activities that we enjoy, that require concentration and that have a continuum of mastery, so an interest in music, an interest in pottery, an interest in whatever it might be, cycling that requires concentration and focus and practice and growth, that has huge benefits in terms of mental health. And the last one that I might suggest is, you know, do something for someone else. When we are feeling anxious or feeling depressed, frequently the focus becomes, we become very consumed inside our heads and inside our space. And when we step out and actually engage in an activity where we are clearly able to serve someone else or volunteer in some capacity, not only will we be doing something for our community that is of benefit, but we will really be doing something for our own mental health. I love that whole list. I'm like, check, check, check. Yep. All my coping mechanisms are working because you've listed most of them. I'm like, you know, getting outside for a morning walk, that was something, you know, especially like I would say in the last year, I've really tried to stick to because I have felt what a difference it makes on me mentally. And, you know, Chrissy, actually, one of the other things to say about that, I love that you have that practice to remind ourselves that we should commit to doing these things even when we don't feel like it, because that's exactly when we'll benefit most. So if we we don't want to wait till we feel like going for a walk, but we commit that that's going to be part of our practice, our daily routines, and we do it, and that's going to really help. Absolutely, because... you know, I think in the beginning it was very hard for me. I have not, I'm not someone who often like has kept a strict workout regimen. And I'm like, this isn't even about, you know, my body, although obviously there are benefits for it, but I'm like, this, I'm really doing this because I want to commit to doing something that's going to help my mind outside of, you know, other little things that I do for myself. And now expanding also on, on helping others, what is the best way to start a respectful and supportive conversation with a loved one who is struggling with these issues? This is a really challenging moment for many people. It's really hard when there's someone we love, someone we care about, who we see, who we think is struggling with a mental health condition, with depression or anxiety or some other mental health condition and eating disorder. What I have seen over the years is that people worry that if they say something, they might actually cause the fear to become real. And so I would say the first thing is to know that when you care about someone, if there's something you're concerned about, it is okay to talk about it. And it's better to talk about it than to stay silent because you're afraid you might offend someone or you might actually give them some ideas or cause some harm. So the first thing is to to lean into having that conversation and feeling comfortable with it. But once you decide you're going to do that, it's really important that you are clear in your head that you're talking to them because you're concerned about them and I think that's the place to start is to Simply describe what you see and state why you're concerned. So for a friend, I noticed last night that you were really quiet and you left the party early. And 
that concerns me because usually you love being out with friends and usually really happy to meet new people. So describing what it is that I see and why that concerns me. And then asking, ask the questions. Would you like to talk about it? Is my observation accurate? Is there something I can do to help you talk about this issue, get you additional help? When we ask people who have had depression, anxiety, eating disorders, other mental health conditions, what made a difference for them? Very, very, very frequently, one of the key factors in their recovery will be a conversation that somebody had with them, that someone took the time to sit down and talk with them and express how much they care. So begin with an observation, begin by saying that you care about them and make yourself available to listen. And what do you do in the instances of someone who, you know, you do see struggling, but maybe they're in denial or they're trying to just brush it off and and give you the like, oh, I'm fine. But, you know, you're still observing something that's maybe concerning. I think, you know, a lot of people might struggle with that because you want someone to get help. But of course, we know that we can't always force people to get help. First thing is, even if someone says, oh, I'm fine, and they don't want to talk further, they heard you. And so you've communicated that you are observing something, that you care, and that you're concerned about where they are. Even if they don't want to talk about it, that message has usually gotten through. If you are concerned that they're in denial, as you've said, like maybe they just don't want to talk to you, but they are talking to someone else. But if you're concerned that they're not getting help and they're actually getting worse in terms of their condition, then it's important to consider your role in the next step of trying to help them access care. And friends often worry, especially high school friends, for example, one friend will confide in another about feeling very depressed, thinking about suicide, vomiting, relating to eating disorders, things that or behaviors that they're keeping secret, but now they've just shared a secret with a friend. Friends can be friends and friends need to be friends, but friends shouldn't be therapists or shouldn't try to be therapists in that and play that role. So at a certain point, as difficult as it is, it's important to communicate to a friend, you know, I understand you might not want to talk to me. I understand that maybe this isn't my business and you want to talk to somebody else, but I'm worried about you enough that I feel like I need to talk to a teacher, a guidance counselor, a parent, an adult who can have responsibility for ensuring that the person you're concerned about is proper, properly evaluated and hopefully at that point then gets proper care. The last thing that I would say on that, Chrissy, is that in general, I would say we wait too long when it comes to mental health. With other health conditions, with a kid who has a fever, if it runs for two or three days, we take them to the doctor right? But we wait too long with mental health conditions yeah. frequently. So err on the side of checking in sooner than later, getting help sooner than later. And if 
there's a real emergency, we should all remember that there are emergency services and, and reach out to those emergency services. Everyone should know about Crisis Text Line and people all over the country have access to 911. 911 actually is going to evolve so that 988 will be the emergency line for mental health. And it's going to take some time for that to be fully staffed, but people should know that that's available and an option in terms of emergency care. Yeah, absolutely. So now where do we stand today as a society in terms of addressing and providing adequate support to those who are struggling with anxiety or depression? Yeah. Uh, Huge. (laughs) I know that's a tough one. (laughs) We as a society are, have among the best trained professionals. We have great therapists and who could be social workers or counselors, psychologists, psychiatrists. We know about treatments that work and that have an evidence base, but getting that what we know into practice is a real problem and there are huge gaps. And so, in fact, that's the target of work that our center focuses on. How do we get what we know into practice? And there are still many gaps in the United States and around the world. So we need to be thinking about how we address that at at multiple levels. How do we, within our school communities, within our work communities, build our mental health programs and services and capacities to support each other in community to really protect and prevent against mental disorders developing? We need to be building more skills in promoting uh, capacities for addressing mental health and really thinking about different members of the community playing a role in that. So teachers and religious leaders and managers in the workplace can play a major role in supporting and, and developing communities that are sensitive to and protective of our mental health. And then we have a huge issue in our current delivery system around psychotherapy and treatment. And so there are gaps and there are many groups and really right now, huge efforts in building capacity. We will never have enough therapists. So if we don't address the issues that are happening in communities. So when we think about how do you build a neighborhood that promotes green space for people to be outside, for kids to play in playgrounds. Those are mental health interventions. How do we address issues of violence in communities? How do we get the right healthier food supply to communities? Those are mental health interventions. And we need to be working at all along that continuum to, in fact, promote mental health. And then we'd have enough capacity to address the mental health needs of individuals who nonetheless develop disorders. I feel like that is something that's really lost on a lot of people that so much of what impacts people's mental health is actually systemic in this country. And there's so many issues, you know, even stemming from trauma that may show up, you know, later in life. It's not just like, oh, my job is really hard and now I'm depressed. There's just so many factors. 
And now last question, what advice would you give to those wanting to seek out support? Who should they go to? So if you are feeling anxious or feeling depressed, you don't need to wait till you're feeling more anxious or more depressed to get help. It's really okay to ask for help all along the continuum because there are different things that you can do that will in fact help you feel better. And we should all be asking the question about who do we reach out to? What can we, who can we connect with? What can we be doing to help ourselves feel not only not depressed, but also feel like we're flourishing, right? So the first thing is, first bit of advice is talk about these issues all along the continuum. And you don't need to wait till you're feeling like you can't get out of bed to ask for help. Second thing I would say is in terms of asking for help or seeking support, to think about who in your community you admire and respect and who you think you can trust with a conversation around how you're feeling. That could be a parent, an older sibling, another family member, someone at school, someone at work, but talk to someone about what you're feeling, what you're thinking, and what ideas they might have about helping you get some help. You can also, as I mentioned, reach out to Crisis Text Line, which is a text line service that really can help you clarify your thinking about what's going on and how you might get help. And then reaching out to any medical provider, any healthcare provider that you have a connection to. It could be a nurse in your internist office or in the, even if you go to a dentist, right? The healthcare network should be able to help you connect to the right professional who would help you evaluate what it is that would be most effective and beneficial. I'd also love to add that Maybelline also just launched a co-branded text line in partnership with Crisis Text Line, which will also provide anyone, anywhere access to a crisis counselor. Just text TOGETHER to 741-741 for 24-7 support. It's fabulous that Maybelline has teamed up with Crisis Text Line to deliver this service. All right. And that's all we have time for today. I want to say thank you so much, Dr. Pike, for joining us today. This conversation was amazing. Thank you, Chrissy. Thanks for talking with me about mental health and to everyone listening. Today sounds so much better than someday. So lean into mental health and wish you all the best. Thanks again to Dr. Pike for joining us today to discuss in-depth ways of combating depression and anxiety and helping those we love. We're here to provide access to mental health resources and support those who need it most. Make sure you subscribe to I'm Fine You, and if you're enjoying the show, leave us a review and tell us what you like. We'd love to hear from you. I'm Chrissy Rutherford, and this has been I'm Fine You, presented by Maybelline New York. Maybelline New York.